can see into me. I'll let you know what's going on in my life. Good things and bad things. We tend to think we need relationships when we're in crisis. Absolutely the case. But relationships add when things are going really well for us as well. Most of us don't have an issue sharing the things that are going really well. It's the areas where we're struggling, where we do. That's transparency. You can see into me the second layer of depth that's required is vulnerability. That means I don't just let you see into me. That can be on a talk show where people kind of put all of their garbage out there on the table. They're being transparent. Vulnerability is I'm going to allow you to speak into that situation in my life. I trust you enough not just to say this is what's going on, but give me some input on that. Give me some feedback. Let me know what you see. Let me know what you're thinking and hearing about this stuff. To me, it moves beyond advice in our relationships because it's not just, well, this is what I think. Hopefully God is involved in that as well. And you're speaking from a perspective of someone who loves me and loves Jesus and is saying, here, this this is my input. So transparency and then vulnerability is the next degree of depth. And then I would say beneath that even is purpose. You want to have a purposeful relationship. We say that uh, God's desire is to conform all of us into the image of Jesus. And one of the ways he does that is through one another. Some of you have friends that go back 15 or 20 or 25 years and you are transparent and vulnerable with them, but there's no purpose behind it. They're not moving you or you're not moving them to become the man or the woman that God's created you to be. You're not moving them or they're not moving you into the purposes that God has for you. That's again, that's the kind of the final layer of depth for me and it's gold when you find it. But it's difficult. Uh, It's not I don't want to say it's difficult. It requires a, a, a great degree of intentionality to uh, develop that depth of relationships with other people. If you're currently in a small group, we're expecting all three of those layers of depth for you. And if you're stuck, it's easy to get in relational ruts. And if you're stuck at one of those, if you're stuck at transparency, that's better than superficial. It's better to be transparent. Someone's got to make the next step to move towards vulnerability and then that next step towards depth there's not it's not an issue of how much time we've spent with one another it's an issue of am i going to take the risk to take the step um, that is required and that's again where the intentionality part comes into play again some of you've been friends with people for 20 years and it's still superficial it's never convenient to talk about some of the things that you need to talk about you just have to make a choice to do that so that's existing small groups new small groups those are just avenues for us most of us don't develop these type of relationships on our own small groups provide the structure at our church there are no fringe benefits you join in a small group it doesn't put your name in a raffle or a lottery or anything that it's just the people that's all that we have to offer are the relationships and so you can assume if you're in one that the other people are looking for that same depth of relationship that you are and it kind of removes that some of that nervousness. Well, are we, are we going for the same things here? Yes. If you're in a small group here, everybody should be going for the same things, pursuing this transparency, vulnerability, and purpose in relationships. So that's why we do them, not just to give us something to do or not because we don't have enough space to do Sunday school, but because we think they promote these life-giving relationships uh, better than anything else. So that's kind of an overview. You'll hear from some of our leaders here in the next few minutes. Uh, let's look at Genesis 1 for a second. Verse 26, God said, let us make man in our image and our likeness and let them rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air of the livestock over all the earth and over all the creatures that move along the ground. 
So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. So um, products tend to work best when they're used according to the manufacturer's specifications. And that's what you see here. These are the manufacturer's specifications for us, for those who he has made. The picture to me is uh, God has created everything. And then Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are having a conversation about what to do next. And they say, let's make humanity. And let's make humanity like us. Let's create man in our image. So we've been created in the image of a relational God. It's not an introvert, extrovert thing. I'm an introvert, and I need friends just as much as Stuart, who's an extrovert. It's, it, it's not separate for us. He might, have, he might can handle more relationships than me because he's extroverted, but I need the same depth, quality of friendships that he does. I can't get, let myself off the hook. Um, by saying I'm introverted or uh, I just like to be alone or whatever that is. I, that's isolation. I'm working against how I was created. I was created in the image of a relational God, and I'm going to be alone, isolated, deficient in a lot of ways, unless I maintain, develop and maintain these life-giving relationships. And if you're extroverted, you can kind of fall the other way and think because you have a thousand Facebook friends or you always have somebody to eat lunch with or you could fill up a room for your birthday party that somehow that means you're not alone. Not the case at all. Some people who are always around folks, they're alone in a crowd because they haven't developed these deep intentional relationships. So again, don't think about introvert, extrovert. Don't think about number of friends, uh, how busy you are, the number of people you get coffee with. None of that, that's not what we're talking about. I'm talking about life-giving relationships. Flip over to uh, chapter 2, verse 18. The Lord said, it's not good for the man to be alone. I'll make a helper suitable for him. Now, to me, this is one of the most significant verses in the entire Bible. If you read Genesis 1, everything God made, he said, was good. He made the sun is good and the moon is good, stars are good, plants, animals, vegetables, all of those things, birds, fish. Everything is good. At the end of the sixth day, he says, it's all very good. He's created out of, everything's very good at that point. And then we see this in chapter two, but this is not good. It's interesting to me. Adam has purposeful work here, work in this garden. He has rest. He has an unhindered relationship with God. Sin has not entered the picture. There's some indication that God maybe in some way is walking with Adam in the garden of Eden. He's literally living in paradise. And God says, that's not good. I want you to think about that. This is borderline, maybe, heresy. So I'm going to step to the side after I say it in case the lightning bolt comes. God, to me, is saying he wasn't enough for Adam in that scenario. It's not good for him to be alone. Adam wasn't alone. He was with God, and God said, that's not, it's not that God is not sufficient, but there's something about us that needs other people. That's a significant statement for us in terms of what type of lives we need to be living and what needs to take priority in our life. If God says, I have this, Adam and I hang out all the time, and he still needs somebody else, what does that mean for us who don't live in the Garden of Eden, in a world that's broken in so many ways? How much more do we need other people? So it's not, it's, We're created for community, positive. It's not good for us to be alone, negative, just tangent. 
That has nothing to do with being married or single, by the way. Uh, There are plenty of married people who are totally isolated, totally alone in their marriage, and there are plenty of single folks who have rich and deep community. Again, it's life-giving relationships. You have them or you don't. Your marital status uh, is beside the point. So, created for community, not good to be alone. Then how come so many of us live in isolation? I read a study um, and it, by the American Sociological Review Board, or American Sociological Society, something like that. And uh, in 2006, they did a survey. 25% of the people they surveyed had zero close friends. Zero. One out of every four people. That's ugly. And that, their definition of close friend is not what we're talking about. What we're talking about is God's definition of community, God's definition of relationship, which requires a greater de- uh, degree of depth than even what these guys were going for in their survey. They were just saying, do you have someone you can talk to? And we've kind of moved from, that's transparency. We've moved to vulnerability and purpose. So that's an even deeper level. So you can imagine what that number is. Way more than 25%. I wonder how many of us in this room would say, honestly, I, I don't know how many, if any, that I have. Which is not a, it's not a guilt thing. Again, it's just if it's not good for us to be alone, we're created for relationships, then how come we don't live that way? And the answer is the fall. Genesis 3, sin is introduced into the picture. Even though many of you are Christians, we've been forgiven of our sins, we're no longer slaves to the sin nature, the effects of the fall continue to um, uh, affect us. The effects of the fall continue to undermine what it, the, what's necessary for us to develop these true and deep relationships. Listen to this. In the eyes of both of them, that's Adam and Eve, were opened. They realized they were naked, so they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man, where are you? Uh, He answered, I heard you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. God said, who told you you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? The man said, the woman you put here with me, she gave me some fruit from the tree and I ate it. Then the Lord God said to the woman, uh, what is this you have done? The woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. What you see introduced into the picture here at first is self-consciousness. They become aware of themselves in a way that they had not been prior. They knew themselves in a way that prior to sin, they were focused on one another. They were focused on their work. They were focused on the Lord. After sin enters the picture, they become aware of themselves, the differences between themselves, which then leads to self-protection. So they're self-conscious, which leads them to self-protection. Same thing happens for us all the time. Most of us are very aware of our frailties, of our sinfulness, of our brokenness, of the areas where we just don't mess up. Many of us think, gosh, if people, could, if people knew what I thought, not good. We protect our, and so we protect ourselves. Rather than putting those things out for others to see, we choose to hide just like Adam and Eve. We justify just like they did. We blame, we lie, we justify, we rationalize, all in an attempt to protect ourselves from people truly knowing who we are because the assumption is if they knew who we really are, then they wouldn't like us very much anyway. And so that's kind of this cycle that we get in. Self-consciousness, for most of us, leads to self-protection. That's the natural tendency that we all have is to hide our weak areas, to hide our flaws, to hide the things that we feel like are unattractive. It's natural, but it's fallen. 
And even though we're no longer slaves to sin, because that's been ingrained in us for so long, it's very difficult to break out of that pattern and to make a choice and say, you know what, this, I'm not going to do that this time. Rather than choosing self-protection, I'm going to choose to expose these things. It's kind of ironic. We hide those things because we think it somehow makes it better. Bad things grow in the dark. Good things grow in the light. What grows in the dark? Like mold and mildew. What grows in the light? Everything else. So you can choose. If you choose to hold those things secret, quiet, keep them hidden, it's bad things are going to grow. If you were going to fix it on your own by now, you would have done so. You're not going to. You've got to bring those things out. You need people who you trust who you can say, this is what I think and this is what I feel and this is where I dropped it. This is where I struggle. This is what I'm afraid of. All of that type of stuff. If you bring it out here, it loses all of its power in your life. And then you wind up walking in freedom. The thing you're trying to protect yourself from, you actually wind up not needing protection from anymore because it has no power over you. But that's an intentional choice, and it goes against our fallen human nature to say I'm going to protect what I've got. If people knew, then they wouldn't like me so much. Second thing you see, he hides from God. I was afraid, so I hid. Very significant as well. God is the only person who can provide permanent, unconditional love and acceptance. You may feel like there's someone in your life who loves you or accepts you unconditionally, but they're going to die. God's the only one who can permanently provide unconditional love and acceptance. The type of relationships that we're talking about are risky, and if you don't have a solid foundation, it will be very difficult to continue to take those risks with other people. All of us are broken, and at some point, my brokenness is going to spill out on you, and yours is going to spill out on me. And if I'm putting too much in our relationship, if I'm banking too much on your response towards me, if I'm expecting too much in terms of grace or love or forgiveness or mercy or whatever, at some point, because you're a person, it's not going to be there. And the same thing from me to you. At some point, just because I'm a broken person, I'm not going to respond well. And if, you're, if you put too much on my response, or if I put too much on your response when it's not good, it can shake us to the core. And we kind of, again, we kind of pick up our ball and we go home. Well, I'm not doing that again. I've tried those kind of relationships. I've been in a small group, whatever. It didn't work out so well for me. On the other hand, if I know who I am in Christ, if I'm confident in my identity, if I know I'm a son and he loves me and he's well pleased with me, if I know but while I was still a sinner, Jesus died for me, if I can get those things into my heart and from that secure and stable foundation then begin to take risks with you, then begin to open myself up to you, when you inevitably disappoint me, which you will, just like I will for you, and when we inevitably miscommunicate, when we inevitably hurt one another, it will still sting, but it won't be debilitating because my foundation is secure. You're not my foundation, and I'm not your foundation. God is. And I know because he has loved me and accepted me, even if you don't respond the way I would like or I don't respond the way you would like, it doesn't shake this foundation under here. If I can get this thing squared away, my foundation in the Lord, confident in who I am in Christ, makes it much easier for me 
to be real with you. And it makes it much easier for you to be real with me. Otherwise, to me, the risk is just is incredibly high if I'm expecting you to provide this foundational identity piece for me. That's way too much pressure on you. The risk is way too high for me. So what I'm going to choose to do is to perform and protect myself, not let you really see who I am. So self-consciousness, which leads to self-protection, fear. And then the last thing you see here um, is fear, excuse me, uh, alienation from God. And the last thing you see is fear. That's in verse uh, 9. You see it again in verses 12 and 13 where they're afraid of how God is going to respond. So they begin to blame and lie. This to me is a huge issue. I would say for many of us, fear is the greatest obstacle to living an obedient life. Uh, I was in the car with some other parents yesterday, and we were talking about what if obedience to God puts your children at risk? And it 100% could. How do you navigate those waters? As a parent, what would you do if to obey God meant your children could suffer harm emotionally, physically, in terms of their future potential? What if those things were compromised in order for you to be faithful to God? What would you do? And don't say God would never ask me to do that. That's a cop-out. And how does fear play into that decision? That's a, again, that's a significant issue. Some of us, we, I did this uh, high ropes course yesterday. And there were some people who were with us who were afraid of heights. And it's interesting. The, the guy spends 20 minutes at the beginning. Here's the harness that cannot break. Here's the rope that's as thick as your forearm. It can hold a truck up. You don't weigh that much. It's ne- we've never lost anyone. Here's a helmet. We've got three pe- four people doing belay and all of those things. We have backups for backups. Nothing is going to happen. For the people who are scared of heights, that's all brain stuff. And they're scared in their gut. None of that speaks gut. It's all speaking brain. It doesn't help. To me, one of the greatest gifts we can give to those we're in relationship with is pointing out this is when you're giving in to fear. And I'm not just going to tell you that the harness isn't going to break. It's a commitment. I'll go first. I'll hold the rope. If you don't have friends like that, you're alone and you're isolated. And you're going to live in fear. And it's, I think God hates it. It's nothing. You can't look at it under a microscope. Where does fear live? 1 John 4.18, perfect love casts out fear. Romans 8.36-39, through nothing can separate you from the love of Christ. Nothing. So if perfect love casts out fear and nothing can separate me from the love of Christ, then why am I ever afraid? That's here. Fear's down here. And what we need is people around us who won't just tell us it's going to be okay. They'll walk with us through all of those things. They'll go first. They'll hold the rope. When we give in to fear, they won't cut us off. We need that or we're living alone 
and we're living isolated. It's not how we were created. And again, I don't know. My perception, God hates it because it's nothing. What? It's nothing. Perfect love casts out fear and nothing can separate you from the love of Jesus. So why are you ever afraid? Why am I ever afraid? Why am I afraid of confrontation? Why am I afraid of letting people down? Why am I afraid of what may happen to my children when they're not, when I don't have them right here? Why am I afraid of losing my job? Why am I afraid of not having enough money for retirement? Why am I afraid of being married? Or why am I afraid of not getting married? Or why am I afraid of what the doctor may say? All of that stuff, that's nothing. And it drives us in so many ways. And I think it kills the Lord. Because there's, he casts out all fear and nothing can separate us from him. So all of those um, restaurants, those are cheap makeovers. It's superficial. Thankfully for us, God doesn't do that. He takes us back to the studs and rebuilds us from inside out. And just like you saw through every one of those, even the basket rabbit, you saw through all of them. I think it's a relief for you to know and for me to know. We see through you and you see through me. Whatever facade I'm putting up, it doesn't work. You can see it in my eyes. You can hear it in my voice. And I can do the same thing for you. So maybe we can just agree to take it down and to choose to develop life-giving relationships with a handful of other people, recognizing that God doesn't just do exterior work on any of us. He starts at the core, 2 Corinthians 5, 17 and 18. You're a new creation. I'm going to give you a new heart, and I'm going to begin to build you from the heart out. And it takes time for the outside to catch up to the inside in a lot of ways. But rather than trying to fake it, I'm just going to be real with what's going on and allow you to come in and walk with me. So uh, I'm going to wrap with this. We have a video. Some of you have never been in a small group at Stonebridge. We want to give you a taste of what that might be like for you. Uh, So, Scott, if you'd show that, then I'll come back up and we'll finish the service.